You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Hey, good morning, Harvest. How are you today? I hope you're doing great. My name is Earl Marshall, and my wife, Brandon, and I are here today. And um, I am the newly minted regional director of Harvest um, Bible Fellowship in Canada. So glad to be here and looking forward to serving your church and the rest of our churches around the country as we uh, anticipate what God's going to be doing through church planting across Canada. I hope your hearts are excited about that, about seeing more churches like this church planted around uh, around the country. I was kind of expecting Daniel to kind of pop out and preach this morning, too. You know, he did, did announcements, and then 10 seconds later, he's in the baptismal tank. And, you know, he's just everywhere. You know, so it's great to be with you. Hey, I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to confess something this morning that I just, um, I just feel like it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian and live faithfully for Christ in Canada. Let that kind of sink in just for a second. I just kind of feel like that. I feel... Um, like there's been this big culture shift that's happened in our country. Now I know I know I'm I'm older. You know I was born in 1961, and I remember my dad saying to me, "Oh, you know times have changed." You know, right? And uh, they got this thing called the internet now. I remember I remember having those kind of conversations with my dad, and and I, I get the fact that there are generational shifts that happen. Each generation says something to the one that comes before, but I I just feel like this is different. There's a real, real significant cultural shift that's afoot and taking place in our country. I just it feels like to me that what I believe is at odds with what everybody else believes. That the Christian point of view is becoming more and more the minority view in our country. Have you have you noticed that? Some of you, some of you feeling that maybe, like, uh, you know, I believe in in this place. I can find many people who believe that God's word is authoritative. That we actually believe that these are these are the words of God to us, and we we apply those to our lives. We live by these words that we could do that well not so outside these walls in fact it's not not even not even we're not even in an era or a time period where the general values of scripture are even valued anymore uh, i remember when i because you know i'm i was born in 1961 so do the math do the math quick just take a second do the math and um i went i, I remember when i went to public school for a few years we actually prayed the lord's prayer just for a few years, we actually prayed the Lord's Prayer. That was then, this is now. I know times have changed, but in general, you know, the, the general values of, of Scripture aren't even really, they're becoming less and less part of our culture. It's increasingly becoming more difficult. We're, our culture has redefined marriage. They're redefining gender. Um... It's hard. It's hard. You know, uh, 
kids are going into the public school and teachers teach Christian teachers teaching in the public school. It's very challenging today. Uh, we, our daughter and son-in-law are experiencing that even right now as they kind of get ready for another school year. It's, a, it's challenging in, in schools. It's challenging as a doctor or a nurse to work and, and be a faithful Christian follower of Christ within a medical community where things like the sanctity of life are being redefined. All these different things are being redefined uh, during our era, during our time period. It's tough, like even at work, to faithfully proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, just the skills, the discernment, the ability to do that, and yet still with confidence to share your faith with somebody else. It's becoming harder and harder to do that. It's even being hard, hard for church planters across our country. I was talking to Quentin Whitford, who is about to plant our 17th Harvest Bible Chapel in the south of Calgary. That's our 17th church in Canada. And uh, I was talking to him the other day, and he was saying, I got, we have everything in place. We've got people, we have finances, people are trained, we've got leaders, we have everything ready to go. The only thing we don't have is a place to meet. I said, well, that's a, that's a bit of a problem. I said, what's the problem with that? Why, why aren't you able to find a place to meet? He says, nobody wants to rent to us because we're a church. That's the, day, that's the day and age in which we live. It's increasingly getting harder and harder. Now, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 this week, and then next week we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 9 of this beautiful letter that's written by the Apostle Peter. And the reason why we're here in these verses for the next two weeks is because this letter was written to Christians who were in the minority, they were living in a culture that was not tolerant towards their beliefs. This book, this letter, had its main themes. You want to, ready for this? Here's what the main themes of 1 Peter are. Persecution, submission, and suffering. Right? Anyone want to sign up for that? Right? Persecution, submission, and suffering are the main main themes in this in this book and so Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are in the minority in their culture they're being persecuted for their faith it's getting harder and harder for them to live faithfully for Jesus Christ because of the things that they're having to to deal with within their culture maybe we're not at the same point that they are but you wonder a little bit about the trajectory that we're headed on and so when it gets harder and harder, we have to get back to two essentials. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see these two essentials. So are you ready to dive in? You ready to go? Okay, you got your Bibles open? All right, let's look at verse 1. Here's how he starts his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right, so far, not a lot different than any other New Testament letter, right? Just starting off like that. But listen, look at what he says next. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
Then he says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, if you were to look at all the introductions to all the New Testament letters, the similarity that Peter has with the other ones are the first line and the last line of this introduction. He says in the first line, hey, I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, not unlike what Paul would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he starts his letter. And then they also end their introduction with similar lines like, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What's different is what is in between. Okay, what's in between. And what he's doing in these verses, in verses 1 and 2, he's emphasizing to them two key essentials. He's saying to them, it's, he's laying the groundwork for the rest of this epistle. And he's saying to them, listen, when life gets harder and harder, remember these two things. Okay, okay, so what's the question then? The question is, okay, what's the two things? What are the two things? Here's the first thing. When life gets harder and harder, you've got to remember this. You've got to stand firm in your calling. Stand firm in your calling. To those who are, what's the next word? To those who are what? What does it say? To those who are elect. Elect, he says. Chosen. People of God. The called out ones. That's what the emphasis here is. You've got to stand firm in this calling. You are, you've been elected. You've been chosen. When life gets harder and harder, you've got to stand firm in that calling. Now, um, most people feel a sense of accomplishment when, um, sorry, they feel confidence when they sense that they're accomplishing something. All right, so I don't know if you find that to be true. I don't know what your week was like. like. I don't know what your week was like. You don't know what my week was like, but... Usually, you, you feel kind of confident, you know, confident in yourself if you've been able to accomplish some things, right? Like maybe you had a long list, a to-do list to do, and you're able to knock all those things off. And, hey, look at me, man. I kind of got it done. It's, like, pretty cool. Or your favorite sports team, maybe your four favorite sports team, like when they're going on a long winning streak, there tends to be a little bit of a swagger, you know? Like, not this summer. Okay, not this summer. <laughs> But think of the last year and the year before, right? Last year and the year before, like, it's like, wow, we're, on, we're doing all right. We're going to make the playoffs. Everything's great. And there's kind of like, strike. not so much when you're on a losing streak or when you're not able to accomplish the things you want you to do. So most people feel really confident when they have a, 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 sense, of, a sense of accomplishment or when they believe in their own abilities. Like the idea that you've... Um, have this sense that, you know, I think I can handle this because I think I'm, I, I have the ability to handle this. Like, that would be, let's say you invited me to come back next week to preach again, which, by the way, has already happened, so that's, that's going to happen. But let's just say, hypothetically, if you were to invite me, maybe if this goes okay, you're going to invite me to come back next week, and, and I, would, I would feel a level of confidence. Not over, I'm not overconfident, but I have a level of confidence that I would be able to do that because I've done that, be, done that before. Now, if you took me after this sermon to the airport and, uh, you know, took me to the cockpit of a 747 that was about to fly to Hong Kong and said, fly this thing. I wouldn't have like a high level of confidence in that because I'm not able to do that. And if you were on that flight, you shouldn't have a very high level <laughs> of confidence either because like 
Right, do you get it? So a lot of people feel confident when, they're, when they have a sense of accomplishment or they're believing in their own abilities or they're, or they're hearing words of affirmation from other people. Isn't it, isn't it interesting what happens when people kind of pat you on the back and they say things like, wow, you're really doing a great job. This is a, amazing. We really kind of believe in you around here. We, you know, like moms, that happens a lot, right, with your kids when they do that for you. They say, hey, mom, you're amazing. Does that happen a lot? No, not much. But you know that, that sense, right? Those, those three, most people get their confidence from those human kind of things. But what happens when you're living in in a culture where it's so hard, where it doesn't feel like you're accomplishing anything, or your abilities aren't getting you anywhere, and you're definitely not hearing words of affirmation? Where's your confidence come from then? Just think about these people that Peter is writing to, people who have been spread out, that are being persecuted for their faith. He says to them, stand firm in your calling. Your confidence comes from being grounded in the fact that you have been chosen. You are elect, he says. That's what the word elect means. It means chosen to those who are elect. It's... um, in, in the Old Testament, that word is used of the nation of, of Israel, like in Psalm 105, verse 6. It says, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Or verse 43 of that same psalm, it says, So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, it says. The idea there is that, is that the nation of Israel was God chose them. He elected them. He called them out. They were called the people of God. That's all wrapped up in this, this word elect. But in the New Testament, it's also used of the church. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where the Apostle Paul is writing the church of Ephesus, and he's talking to Christians, and he says, them, you, you've been chosen by God before the foundations of the earth, he says, chosen by God. Like in Christ, Chosen before the fact, I mean, just thinking about those words, wow. I mean, just huge. That, that's exactly what you are. The fact, and then here in 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 9 in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, as he's writing these people, and as the Spirit of God is speaking to us this morning, he says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that you are part of a what? Chosen race, same word, chosen there, as elect in verse 1. The idea here that we're part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, we're part of a holy nation, he says, talking to followers of Christ. The fact that you are chosen should give you confidence. Now, how people choose and how God chooses is dramatically different. This is how I've chosen my whole life. I choose others usually based on two things. Now, don't judge me, okay? But usually based on two things. And I know you do the same thing. We usually choose people based on their capabilities or and the chemistry or the fit that you have with somebody else. So... Uh, I've done, I've hired a number of people over my lifetime, and I have never sat across the table from somebody in, in an interview and come to the conclusion that, that they don't have the right skill set and I really don't like them, and then hired them. Never done that. 
It's always like, wow, this, I really feel that this person will either they have it or they'll grow into being able to have the ability to do this. And wow, this would be a real great add to our team. It'd be really fantastic to do that. Now, I learned that really early on. You know, when I was younger, I used to play road hockey. Does anyone know what road hockey is? All right, Canadian. I, most Canadians know what road hockey is. Or I also played basketball, a lot of pickup basketball. And as a, young, as a young boy, I remember there were times when I got, you know, we had like 10 people and you line them up against the wall, you know, and two of you get to pick. And so one of you gets to go first and the other person goes second. And whenever it was my turn to pick, I was always thinking about those two things. Always thinking about those two things. Is that guy any good? Right? I'm not picking Johnny because I know he can't score or shoot. There's not a chance in the world. He can't guard anybody, and he's not fast enough. But I always, you're always looking for who's the best one, who's the best one, and do I like them? All right, come on, come on, come on, be honest. <laughs> be honest. Anybody else? Anybody else in the room like that? Yeah, you, that's what we're doing. We're picking. That's how people pick. That's how human beings choose. Not God. God doesn't choose like that. God doesn't choose based on capabilities or competency, and he doesn't even pick based on chemistry. Do you know that God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you place your full faith in Jesus Christ. That means that God has chosen you. He gave you that gift of faith in the first place, and you've expressed that, and you are now a child. You are now a child of God. Do you know that God did not choose you based on your abilities and even based on whether you were a great fit in his family? He didn't. Right? I don't think God was, when he, I don't think when he gave me the gift of salvation that he was sitting up in heaven looking at Earl Marshall and saying, wow, you know what? I'm going to, I, I want to give this gift to him. I want to see him become a child of God because I think he's got some really amazing skills. I just don't think that. I know that's not the case. And I don't think he even picked me because he thought I'd be great with everybody else. Do you know what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10? It says that God chose me even when I didn't want to be on the team. While we were at Sinners, while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. God, God doesn't choose. God doesn't choose the same way he chooses. How, how does he choose? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. This is how he chooses. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. That's how God chooses. The whole Godhead is involved, right? Did you see that? Did you see the Trinity in, in verse 2? God the Father, right? The Spirit, and Jesus Christ. All three involved in this, 
in this election, this, this, this choosing. It's, it's choosing according to God's plan in verse 2. This idea of foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God the Father, it, it, that's, a, that's just a word that's reserved for God himself. Nobody else does this. Only God himself. He foreknows. And that word means that God knew, but it also means that he made it happen. It's not like God just had a crystal ball and knew something was going to happen. He actually knew it was going to happen and made it happen. So, wow, wow, how do you know that? Well, look at the same chapter, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says this, that he was, Christ was, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of 